0: I'm grateful to serve here at a church where, uh, where we have people that are, are talented, but I'll tell you what, to see the ways that these, this group's growing in uh, the Holy Spirit within them and as leading worship, they're, they're not up here to entertain. They're here to lead us in worship, and I'm grateful for the hearts that I see turning toward Him, and I'm, I'm grateful for this time uh, together. This morning, I want to begin a new part of this series called Rooted, where we're going to focus on the kingdom. Uh, of God, and, and I got to tell you, I started this series, uh, or when I saw these symbols, I thought this is gonna be a great series. I just didn't know what this ascension part was gonna be all about, because as I remember growing up, I don't remember the gospel talking about the ascension as good news. I, really, the gospel I remember growing up were three of these symbols. You know, it was the cross, it was the resurrection, and then we we're looking forward to Jesus' return as a big part of the good news still to come. But as I've, as I've gotten to hear from God over the last few weeks, and, and I'm excited to share with you what's coming, i got to tell you, I'm excited about this series. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God and explain what that is, what God's bringing here that we just sang about, but also we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And that has been a topic that really we haven't talked enough about, I think, in, in our tribe. And so I'm excited about uh, really engaging and not just, what are we doing sitting on our hands until Christ returns, but there's work to do now, amen? And God is alive in our world today, not just 2,000 years ago, and not just in the future when he returns, but is doing something in 2016 as well. And we want to be a part of that, don't we, church? Let's pray as we, we open up God's word uh, today. God, I, I thank you so much uh, for what you're calling us to in this season, God, in this church, in our community, in this world. There's there's this time, God, is a time where your church is needed, where your kingdom is. Uh, needs to be planted and it needs to grow, and it needs to find roots and so God, we want to find those roots in the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to be a church that is set ablaze, set on fire for the right reasons, and that 's because of the good news that we get to share and so God this morning, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching God use the passion I have for for this this morning, may it come out in just the way uh, that you would touch lives. Uh, we pray this in the name uh, of Jesus, amen. Well, if you would, I'd I'd like to ask you to turn with me to uh, the story in Acts chapter 1 where we read about the ascension of Jesus. Jesus uh, ascending to to, to be at the right hand of the Father from this earth. This is Acts 1. I want to read beginning in verse 1 as we set the context for this uh, conversation. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid, hid him from their sight. And we're going to spend more time in this passage, Acts 1 and 2, next week. But this morning, I want to come back to the question that the disciples asked there in, in verse 6, because I think this really sets us on a course for this conversation about kingdom. So I want to read again verse 6, their question to him. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom?" Now, that's an interesting question for a lot of reasons that I want to talk about today. One of the interesting parts is, uh, in all my years growing up, this is not a question I would have thought to have asked Jesus at the end of his time on earth. Now, they may not know that he's about to ascend to heaven. I don't know what they know. But this is the last question that's recorded that Jesus gets asked before he leaves earth to go be with the Father. The question is, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? But what I found interesting is, even though I didn't grow up hearing all that much about kingdom, I heard a lot more about church, I heard a lot more about heaven, even though I didn't hear much about kingdom, this seems to be the central question that the disciples are wanting to know about from Jesus. When are you going to send your kingdom? Is your, Are you going to restore the kingdom in this time to Israel? But in all my teaching about church and heaven, what's interesting is, I, I learned about those things, but they don't show up as much as the kingdom does in the Gospels. It's interesting, the only time the word church comes up in the Gospels comes in the, the book of Matthew. And it only happens in two passages. And the word's only mentioned four times. But we talk all the time about church. Now, of course, there are letters that happen after that. And then heaven's a topic we talk a lot about. It. I remember hearing a lot growing up. But most of the times that Jesus talks about heaven, it's actually the kingdom of heaven. And it's it's not what we sometimes imagine as this otherworldly experience. He's talking about a kingdom that he announces is coming. In the present. And and he mentions the word kingdom over 80 times in the Gospels. 80 times. And I'll tell you, my play in church when it comes to vocabulary, it was much less kingdom than it was other things. One writer puts it this way He says, The disciples wanted a kingdom without a cross. We want a cross without a kingdom. Does that make sense? And that's what the question that those disciples are asking is Are you going to restore your kingdom now? They are running away when the cross comes, but, but here we have uh, us in, in our present age, and it's like, I don't remember hearing much about the kingdom, but I heard a lot about the cross and what it gave to us. But both of these realities are, are vital for what God is calling us to now. So today I want to look at the kingdom, because I believe this was the central message that Jesus came to live out and pronounce as he was on the earth. In fact, the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark are about this topic, the kingdom of of God. So if you would, turn with me to the first chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 1. I want to read verse 15. These are the first words of Jesus right out of the gate in, in this gospel. It says there, the time has come, he said, that the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I, I want to talk about this statement for a little bit. What does it mean when Jesus says that the kingdom has come near? And then repent and believe the good news. This is the good news message that Jesus comes to bring. But to go there, we've got to talk about this word kingdom because it has all kinds of associations in our world. The, the Greek word for kingdom is actually the word basileia, basileia. And if people would have talked about the Roman Empire, what they're talking about is the Roman basileia. It can mean empire. It can mean uh, it can mean empire. It can mean kingdom. It can also mean rule. Right? God's rule in the world is. Kingdom is what he reigns over, bringing his reign into the world. So what does a basileia consist of? There's three things that every kingdom, every empire consists of that should con- be conjured up when we hear this term. The first is every uh, kingdom has a king, right? Every, every kingdom has citizens. And every kingdom has territory. Every, I'll go back to, to, the, to the kingdom of Israel, for instance, right? When David's reigning on the throne, there's a a king, there's Saul, there's David, there's all these kings in Israel. There's also citizens. There's the 12 tribes of Israel that make up the people in this kingdom, but there's also territory, and it either expands or it decreases war by war uh, as the people of God are moving into the promised land. Same is true in the Roman Basilea, in the the Roman Empire. There's a king. Caesar is king. There's also uh, citizens, those who pay taxes to Caesar and live inside his territory. There's territory also. What's amazing is in the first century, the Roman Empire expanded all the way from England all the way east of Israel, North Africa included in that. This is a massive empire that even grows larger as time goes on past the time of Jesus. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're still talking about those three realities that are part of the kingdom of God. Every kingdom, including the kingdom of God, has a king. And so the king is is, is Jesus in the kingdom of God, right? But beyond that, the king also has uh, uh, people who are part of that, citizens. And sometimes the citizens get away from ter- you know the, the reign of Caesar, right? Thank you all so much you serve uh, every week in our children's ministry. You don't know why I went into preaching. Sometimes it's so I don't have to be doing that. My goodness. So back to what I'm talking about, the kingdom. Every kingdom has a king. Jesus is king in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has citizens. It's those who are followers of Jesus. Uh, And sometimes we wander off, right? But every every kingdom has a territory. And I want to talk about that territory because what does that look like in the kingdom of God? It's hard to kind of say where's the territory of the kingdom. Uh, But what we see in, in the world is everywhere that God's rule, his reign, the way he desires for things to be, that kingdom, that territory is growing. And sometimes we see it growing by leaps and bounds, and other times it's, it's harder to see where the kingdom of God's at work. But these three things reign in every kingdom. So I want you to imagine the excitement of being these disciples and, and hearing that a kingdom is on its way. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near. And they've got all kinds of things in their minds about kingdoms and basilea and what that means. This must mean that Rome is on its way out and God and his kingdom is coming in, right? Acts 1, 6, you're going to restore the kingdom at this time to Israel. You can imagine the excitement about that. Maybe that's why the disciples asked this question, right, about announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. When's it coming? We've been waiting on it. And a new kingdom is good news when you don't like the current kingdom you're a part of, right? Which concerns me a little bit. Because if we're not all that excited about God's kingdom, it might just be because we've become a little too comfortable with the arrangement of the kingdoms of the world that we live in now. See, revolution is a whole lot more exciting if you're on the end of those who don't like the way things are, if the current arrangement isn't a good thing. The revolution's the worst thing imaginable if things are set up in your favor. When Jesus uses this term, basileia, he's declaring an all-out war against every other kingdom. And we see the result of this, don't we? Why does Herod kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem? Because he knows there's another king that's being announced, and that's a threat to his kingdom. Why do the political authorities in the first century put Jesus to death along with the leaders of the Jewish people? It's because there's another king that's being announced with a new kingdom that threatens the old kingdom. And in Mark 1.15, Jesus is announcing that this kingdom of God is breaking into the world as we know it. And what does he say about that? He says, the kingdom of God has come near repent and believe the good news. What does repent mean in this sense? Repent means to change one's mind. It means to turn completely around. We were living in the kingdoms of this world but now we're orienting our life back to the kingdom of God, God's rule, God's reign, the way he desires for things to be. That's the way we're setting our lives on a course now. We're setting our our, our lives in tune with God's future rather than the past. That's the brokenness of this world. And people understand this kingdom in different ways in the first century. We're not the first people to misunderstand kingdom. This has been going on for a long time now. And in the first century, it would have been misunderstood as well. So in the Jewish world, uh, there are four uh, different groups that kind of make up the Jewish people in the the first century. There's probably more than that, but we sometimes think about the Jewish people as kind of a uniform group that's just one group, but actually it's as diverse or more as Christianity is today. So I want to talk about these four groups because these four groups expect a Messiah that's going to look like them. We tend to do this, don't we? The Messiah is going to agree with us and look like us and do things like we would do it. So the first of these groups is a group you'll know. It's a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees uh, get a bad rap in the New Testament, but if you were in that area, some of you would have chosen to be Pharisees as well, because the reason that they try to hold up the moral law, which is what Pharisees are, right, they believe that a recommitment to the morality of God's law would secure their freedom and perhaps usher in the Messiah, the kingdom of God. So they're the moral police of sorts. So they get a bad rap, but the reality is if you had been exiled and and for over 100 years, about 400 years, God's silent, doesn't seem to be doing anything, and the reason you're in exile is because you've disobeyed God's laws and you've followed and worshipped other gods, don't you think you would want to follow God's laws so that he could bring his kingdom again and you could have your reign and your territory? It's a natural response. It's a confession to say we did it wrong, and we want to do it the right way. We want to follow your commands, God. Would you give us our kingdom back? So the Pharisees are on the right track, and they're saying, "Look, if 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 we would just repent and we would stop our complacent tolerance of of drunks and prostitutes and gluttons and those who don't pay their tithes to the temple, and if we would faithfully observe every law that God has given to us, then God will come in and wipe the Romans out and let us live in prosperity and security and." We can be God's chosen people again, which is a reminder that these four groups I'm about to share with you, they're current day examples of each of these groups, right? You know Pharisees, right? If we could just get back to the right morality and follow the code, then God would come in and He would bless us, and that's some of the project uh, that's there. The second group is the Herodians. You, hear, you read Herod in their name, which tells you something about them. Another name they're known as is the Sadducees. Now, Herodians were the political realists of their day. They knew that nobody could defeat Rome, and so if you can't beat them, join them, right? You work within the political system to try to maneuver and make things a certain way so that the world can be a better place. And I think we know we have these examples as well, right, in 21st century America. So they would bow to Caesar. They'd They give their incense offering and then they try to work within that for God's kingdom to come to effect change. The third group that Jesus would have known, in fact, he had a disciple, Simon, the Zealot. It's the Zealots, is the third group. These were violent revolutionaries who believed that the kingdom would come through overthrow of power. So they're gathering their tanks and their weapons and their resources ready for the all out Armageddon war that's going to. You're seeing the parallels, aren't you, right? And King David was the hero, and so maybe God's going to do another David and Goliath story, right? Goliath is the Roman Empire, and Israel is David, and and God's going to help us overthrow the giant. Maybe that's what it is. There's a fourth group. The fourth group's called the Essenes. The Essenes were a group around Qumran. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that came from this community that continued to write out and, and copy and make scriptures uh, uh, further. It's amazing what that's given to us. But they lived around the Dead Sea, and they lived in that region for a purpose, because their idea was, we've got to remove ourselves from the filth of Jerusalem. It's become co-opted in all kinds of ways, so if we can move out to the desert, we can finally live in our isolation, be the utopian community we need to be And So the Essenes said, let's isolate ourselves and get out of the world. And maybe that'll be, it's kind of like the Amish of our day. That's kind of the impulse of the Essene community. And these groups are all waiting on a Messiah, and they're looking for the Messiah to show up to look just like them. The problem is, Jesus doesn't look like any of them. Some were expecting he would come and he would be pure like the Pharisees. Some were expecting he'd be political like the Herodians, and some expected he'd be violent like the Zealots, and others, he'd just remove himself like... The Essenes. But Jesus didn't fulfill any of these roles. He, he isn't a Pharisee. He eats with tax collectors and sinners, and they're upset with him about that. Matthew 23, read that. that that'll tell you all the reason he's not a Pharisee. Woe on you, you Pharisees. You, you don't seem to get it. He isn't a Herodian. He rejects the kingdoms of the world when Satan offers those kingdoms to him. He isn't a zealot. He, he tells Peter to put away his sword when it comes time for him to be arrested. He isn't an Essene. He doesn't isolate himself from the world. He's in the middle of the world acting different than the world, but he doesn't remove himself. Jesus didn't fulfill the expectations that were around in the Jewish era about who he would be as the Messiah, because this is a different kind of Basilea than all the other Basileas they'd known before. Jesus understands that these four ways of interacting in the world that we talked about, morality, accommodation, violence, or isolation, the kingdom doesn't advance through these means. It's a kingdom that's built on love, a kingdom that's built on restoration and reconciliation. It's a kingdom not established through wars to acquire new land. It's a battle and a war that's waged within the hearts of men and women whose souls are being taken by the evil one, the prince of darkness. And God is trying to grab us all back and gain our hearts and our souls back. Now, these ideas, for some of you, these aren't new, right? I mean, just this morning, I was in Galen's class, and he was talking about this. If you've heard of Kingdom Living, if you've ever been in a Galen class, you get all this, right? But others of you, it's been a tension to hear Galen, and it's a tension to hear this because you grew up hearing a little differently than what the kingdom might be about, perhaps. In fact, the church I grew up in, from time to time, believed differently about this. Some of us grew up in churches that taught the church and the kingdom. They're actually just the same thing. Some of you actually were were, were taught growing up, we don't pray the Lord's prayer anymore because in the Lord's prayer, we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that happened when the church was brought into being, right? The kingdom's here. So now that's kind of a, a prayer of the past, not something we continue to pray. But I don't believe that's the teaching of Jesus. I believe the kingdom exists and the church points to it and gives glimpses of it, but it's It's larger than that. I want to go to the Lord's Prayer for just a moment because I think this is an important passage for us to get in this kingdom series. Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6. I'll begin reading in verse 9. Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, now the reason some teachers, again, have taught us not to pray this is because, like I said, if the church and the kingdom are the same thing, then there's no need to pray for God to bring his kingdom anymore. There might be some other prayers around that section we can pray and some of our prayers, but that's already been done. But Again, I don't believe this is the teaching of, of, of Jesus. I don't believe the kingdom... And the church are the same thing. I've, I've had too many painful experiences in church to believe this is the fullness of the kingdom of God. And I'm sure many of you have as well. In fact, if this is the fullness of the kingdom, then count me out. Because it's painful, right? God's people are not always who we claim to be. Healed, healing of sickness is not all present in this world as was promised. uh, the the peace that's supposed to come. Churches are sometimes not a place of peace at all as some of you have known. I gotta say, I love this church. I love getting to minister among you and the more I get to know you, the more I get to see the stories of God's grace and the way he works. I love this church and I get glimpses of the kingdom all the time here. Things that many of you don't even know because I get to see it behind the scenes and there's stories you know that I don't yet know. We get to see the kingdom here, don't we? We get a taste of what it's going to one day be like in its fullness. It's okay to say amen to that. We get those pictures, don't we? The kingdom of God is here, but here's what I would say. The kingdom of God is not yet fully here. We're still waiting on God to fulfill all the promises that he has told us about what the kingdom is. How do I illustrate this? Let me think about this. I've been thinking about this this week, and this this is the best I can do. So Holly... Uh, My wife drives an SUV, and in that SUV, she tends to drive around with three kids in the car under the age of seven. Uh, That SUV is Holly's kingdom in a way, right? She's the king, and there's the citizens who drive in the car, and then there's, uh, that's her territory, right? Those are the three things that make up a a, a kingdom. And and, and, and there are moments when that kingdom acts the way that she would want that kingdom to act. There are moments where the car is clean. And there are moments when things are at peace. And there are moments where her wishes in this kingdom of hers actually go just as she would desire. But I guarantee you, there are moments when it is not clean. There are moments when the decibel level in that car from the citizens are far more than she desires. Can anyone say amen? The SUV is Holly's kingdom, but sometimes her kingdom is in chaos. It's not as she yet wishes it to be. And the same is true in our world, isn't it? This world is God's kingdom. He's he's bringing his kingdom to bear in this world, but it's not yet all that he wants it to be. There's still sickness that he desires wouldn't be here. When Jesus was on the earth, we saw him healing that sickness. There's brokenness in this world he desires wouldn't be here. Even within our church we see these, these things that God wants to heal within us. But a day is coming in the future when things will be fully as God desires. A day is coming when the evil one will not have the power to create chaos in this world. A day is coming when cancer will have no more power. A day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, And when Christ returns, the earth will be restored and all shall be well. But, until then, we the church have a calling before Jesus chooses to return. And one of those callings, maybe the beginning of that calling, I believe, is to pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Because I think it's really important for us to understand, sometimes we talk about building the kingdom that we're going to build it, we're going to expand God's kingdom. We don't do that. God is the only one who can build his kingdom. What we do is we welcome his kingdom. We celebrate his kingdom where we see it. We receive his kingdom. It's passive language in the New Testament when it comes to the kingdom. It's God who advances. And so we pray, God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what does that mean? Well, for one, it means that Christianity's obsession with trying to escape This earth isn't the trajectory of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Notice the direction of the prayer. The request isn't about escaping to another place. The request is for God to come and bring his kingdom here. It's for God to come and, and make this world the way He desires. And, and that's the question the disciples are asking Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you at this time going to do that? God, we've been praying this prayer you taught us to pray. Is this the time? But they still don't quite get it. They expect Jesus to establish a government and ascend a throne. They're ready with cabinet positions all picked out. They expect the empire of God to look like the empire of Caesar. And the automatic way our imaginations begin to work when we think that a new kingdom is on its way, as we begin to think about uh, how many resources and weapons and, and all the things at our disposal so that God can use those things to overtake the way the world is today, we think power over, don't we? It's the way we've been taught to think. But the kingdom of God doesn't advance through tanks and weapons. So what does it look like when Jesus brings his kingdom to earth? And Jesus tells us a few stories about this. Do you remember them? It says the kingdom of God's like this guy who scatters seed along the path, and and there's good soil and there's bad soil, and you can't sort through all the soil, but he scatters seed. He says the the kingdom of God's like this tiny mustard seed that gets buried in the ground, and and then it sprouts forth, and it what it produces can't be contained. Kingdom of God's like like yeast, a little yeast that's a woman works into dough, and it begins to make something other than what it currently is. The kingdom of God is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like a a net that's let down into a lake that brings up fish when it's brought forth. These are the stories not of hostile takeovers and revolutions. These are stories not about culture wars and boycotts. These are stories about sabotage. These are stories of subversion. All of these stories I just named, they're stories about seeds going into the ground, about death, and then what comes forth from death is rebirth again. There's stories about a net going into the water, things you can't see, and then up from that net comes these fish. What comes in this world is what we've already talked about. It's the cross, and it's the resurrection. It's death, and it's rebirth. And this is how God's kingdom comes. Not through power over. It usually happens, and it looks dead. But when it looks dead, God's the best at bringing it back to life. And so in all of our fear and concern about Christianity in North America, and then it may be dying, let me just remind you of how this works, right? Everything that dies in the kingdom, it comes back and it can't be stopped. That's why in China right now, they tried to stamp out Christianity, and the American missionaries were thrown out. And we thought, well, if we as the Americans aren't there, we'll see what happens. And now there's hundreds of thousands, maybe up to a million Christians waiting the flood out of China on a journey back to Jerusalem, planting the gospel once the borders are open. It's amazing how we think it it has to happen through power over triumphalism, or God, if it's not happening, how are you going to do it? But the truth is, every time something gets buried in the ground in the kingdom, it comes back forth to new life. There's, There's a future on its way. And the future is the basilea of God. We we catch glimpses from time to time, don't we? You've ever had that moment around a meal, around a table with good friends or family? And there's grandma's pie that's there, or maybe mom's pie, or maybe you're the one making the pie now. And there's that taste, and it's like, it it tastes like heaven on earth. You ever have those moments in the car, in the SUV, where actually it is peaceful, and it's quiet, and everyone's laughing? And you're like, this feels a little bit like heaven on earth. That's what it is. It's these pictures of what it's one day going to be like, and we long for that day to happen, and we want it to happen. We don't want to bring it, and so we say, God, we're going to bring your kingdom. And he says, no, 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 that's, that's my job. It's your job to allow things to come back to life. as so we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. It's our calling to pray for his kingdom to come, but it's also our calling to put things on display the way they'll one day be. This is the challenge I want to give you for Monday morning, okay? God's future looks a certain way. It's the way he designed the world to be. It's Eden, but Eden's going to be restored one day. And it's our job as the church to put on display God's future in the present. And it's going to look really bizarre to those people who've gotten used to the kingdoms of this world. You're going to say, what are you doing? You don't bury things in the ground, but we know better, right? Right? So we plant these seeds and we show people what the future looks like. We show what reconciliation looks like. We walk into conflict and we serve as peacemakers. We, we walk beside those who mourn and we mourn beside them. We, we, we share our stories of what God's doing and we say, look beyond what you see. And all in that, what we're doing is we're putting on display in the present what God's future is. We don't coerce people into the kingdom of God. We fascinate them into the kingdom of God. We put on display a kind of life they can't imagine would work, and every time it works, and they have to say, what is this about? This is better news than I've ever heard about, and that's what we have to proclaim. Does this excite you, church? This is what you get to do every day in your office, is there's a normal way to do things, and you step outside of that box, and you plant that seed in the ground, and it begins to sprout forth. and people say, what is this you're living? We're going to sing in a minute, Bring your kingdom here, not build your kingdom we're going to do. Bring your kingdom here, God. That's our prayer. That's Lord's prayer in song, isn't it? And I want to close this morning with a prayer that we're going to pray every one of these weeks of this series. It's going to be the Lord's prayer, right? Why why recreate what God gave us to do? And we're going to pray this prayer. God, would you bring your kingdom here? We, we can't do this on our own. It's not through our effort this is going to happen. It's not going to happen through purifying things the way you want it to be. It's not going to happen through isolating ourselves or through any of those things. The only way your kingdom can come is if you bring it. And we want to welcome it. We want to receive it. We want to point to it. We want to receive those tastes and offer them to others. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. So right now, I want to put these words on the screen. I know we learned them in different translations. Maybe this is new to some of you. And we're so glad we have the words on the screen. I, I, I did this in the New King James Version. I think it's a really good translation, but some of you learned it in the King James. So there may be some differences, but I know you get to that part where it's like debtors or transgressors. So If you would pray it in this way, it would help us kind of say this together. But let this be our our close to the sermon this morning as we pray these words to God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power